0: Um, So let me give you a little bit of history, a little bit of review. David became the king of Israel when David actually, um, Saul was before him, but Saul was the first king. Then David comes in as king, and then David dies, and a guy by the name of Solomon takes over, and then Solomon dies, and he gives the king to his two sons, um, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So now we have two guys who are going to be king, and just like brothers, they couldn't get along. So... They decided, you take one group, I'll take another group. So what happened is, one of them uh, takes a group to the north. Um, and so Israel now, which is like a group like this, splits, okay? And there's a north and a south, kind of like the Civil War in America years ago, okay? Which, unfortunately, some southerners still think is going on. Um, uh, but there's a north and there's a south, Okay. Um, the south has two tribes in it and Jerusalem is its capital in that tribe we have good and bad kings Um, their their group um, actually ends up going into captivity on three occasions and and, and going back and forth until the third when they finally go into captivity so when you read the bible stories like Nehemiah and and they came out of Babylonian captivity that happened in the south Uh, those tribes there were eight good kings all the rest were bad Um, and so in that story of of judah the southern kingdom we have good and bad kings so in your bible in the old testament when you read about different prophets you have to figure out who they're talking to are they talking to a northern kingdom or a southern kingdom okay Um, the other kingdom is in the north the kingdom in the north lasts about 210 years it only has bad kings there are no good kings The story that we're looking at this morning is from a guy by the name of Elijah. Elijah is a prophet. He is sent to the northern kingdom. He is from the northern kingdom. He appears on the scene. The king at the time is a guy by the name of Ahab. Ahab is the fourth longest reigning king in the northern kingdom. What has happened is Ahab is a spineless jellyfish. Um, He marries a woman by the name of Jezebel. She is a wicked woman. You have never heard of a child named Jezebel, and there is a reason for that. Um, Jezebel, nothing good is said about Jezebel in the Bible. Um, In fact, the dogs eat her when she dies, and the Bible is very explicit about that story. Because, why? Because she wanted nothing to do with the God of heaven. In fact, when Ahab marries her and brings her down, she actually... Uh, comes into the northern kingdom and she says, I'm tired of hearing about this God Jehovah. I think he's a joke. Everyone should worship my God, which is Baal. And she brings in 450 prophets. They come down into the northern kingdom. They spread out all over the northern kingdom. They set up Baal worship. They teach people Baal worship and they start taking the prophets and the priests and killing them. So what happens is now the king, Ahab, and his wife, the queen, Jezebel, have basically turned the whole northern kingdom into nothing but Baal worship. And God says, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm going to send a prophet to deal with this. And so, our prophet, by the name of Elijah, is the guy who comes on the scene. Elijah comes onto the scene. He goes face to face. He's just doing his thing. And God says, I want you to go to Ahab. I want you to tell him it's going to stop raining. And so, he goes to Ahab and he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And it goes for three and a half years with no rain. We came off of a season this year where it was a drought and things were dry. Can you imagine no rain? No snow, no dew, no anything for three and a half years, and that's what happened. And so Elijah, when we find Elijah last week, we talked about Elijah after he tells, after he goes and tells Ahab, God says, "Okay, Elijah, your next step is I want you to go to the brook Cherith," and He sends him to this brook. Um, Josh, give me that map deal that's up, that's on there. I think it's like the third slide. Okay. What happens is Samaria is the capital. This is like the, see, this is Israel. It cuts across right in here, okay? And so this is the northern kingdom, and this is the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So when Ahab and Elijah meet the first time, they meet right here in Samaria. God then comes to him and says, I want you to go to a brook Cherith over by the Jordan River. So he goes right over here to this little brook which is located in this area. This is kind of a mountainous area. He sends him there, and you know the story. We talked about this last week. The ravens came feed him. Every morning, every night, he, had, he basically carry out delivery. I mean, in would drop a raven, they'd bring him meat, next one would come in and bring him bread. That, that evening, same thing. Next day, same thing. He's sitting by a brook, he's drinking water, but all of a sudden, what's going to happen is, as the drought gets worse and worse and worse, the Sea of Galilee is going to start going down, and what you're going to see is this river, the Jordan River, is going to start to dry up as well. But before the river dries up, guess what's going to dry up? The brook. So every day, Elijah sits there and watches the brook go down and down and down. And eventually, it's, it's, it's a dry creek bed. He goes over to the little puddles that are still left. And eventually, they dry up. And Elijah at that point does not go running around looking for the Jordan River or up to the Sea of Galilee. He stays right there and waits for God to tell him what to do next. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of heads up just so you know because then I don't have to go back to the map. God is going to tell him to go to Zarephath. Okay. So here's what's going to happen. He's going to leave here. He's going to go all the way up to here. The border for the northern kingdom is right about in here. So you need to understand he's actually going to leave the land of Judah, or the land of Israel, okay, when God tells him to make the next move. All right? So with that in mind, we're in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. Here's what it says. It starts with this idea of, he says, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he said, Oh, and bring me a piece of bread. As sure as your lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Could you have had a more sad story from asking somebody for a glass of water? And so this widow lady goes, you don't have any idea what you're asking. Notice what happens. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. All right, that's the story. Okay? Let's talk about that and then we're going to get into the next part of the story in a second. Elijah's sitting there every day watching the brook get smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually it's dry, but every day he's watching those ravens come in boom, boom, boom. Here's what's amazing to me you know what Elijah does? He waits. He doesn't go to plan B, C, D, E, and F, he waits. He doesn't panic. He doesn't get all worried about what's going to happen. Elijah sits there and waits for God to tell him what to do next. And then, here's what God says. God says, go where? Help me out. Go where? Zarephath. Okay? Zarephath. Now, let's let's understand some things. Zarephath is a hundred miles away. Zarephath... He's going to have to travel a 100 miles, and there has been a what? Drought. So food and water along this journey are going to be very, very difficult to come by, right? He's going to have to travel a 100 miles into not Jewish land, but Phoenician land. Anybody want to take a wild guess? Where Jezebel got her 450 prophets of Baal? Phoenicia. So God comes to him and says, "Hey, here's plan, here's your next plan, buddy. I'm going to lay it all out for you. You're going to go to Zarephath, what? That's 100 miles away. That, that's surrounded like Baal prophet territory. Yeah? And then when you get there, I got a widow woman who's going to take care of you really really because right off the bat widow women were not known for wealth okay and what does he do what does the bible say this guy does he gets up and he starts walking and he goes all the way to Zarephath and when it gets to Zarephath it's the evening and there's some I want to keep saying little widow old lady but I don't know that it was There's a widow woman there. And this widow woman is doing what? First of all, where is she she at? City gate. I can't imagine there being a lot of sticks at the city gate. The city gate is where everybody went in and out of. You would think that in time of drought, all of the sticks at this point would pretty much be gone. But for whatever reason, it is such a poor little scene that this little widow lady is gathering a few sticks to do what? To go home, look at her poor little child, and say, After this we die. Can you get a more pathetic scene? And Elijah, who has traveled a hundred miles, sees this woman, and the first thing he said to her is what? Can you go get me a glass of water? That doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but let's ask ourselves, what is happening right now? It's a drought. Guess what's really hard to come by? Water. And it's the end of the day, which means if she had gone up in the morning and gotten water for the day, it's gone by now. It's not like she's going to the faucet and turning on, here's a glass. She's got to go all the way home to get him water and come back. And then as she's going, he says, by the way, grab me a biscuit on the way. She stops and she comes back and she goes, look, sir, let me tell you my scene. Let me tell you my story. I am going to go home with these two sticks or little sticks in my hand I'm going to make a fire I've got a little oil and a little fire I'm going to make the last bit of bread that I can make I'm going to give half of it to my son I'm going to take half we're going to eat it and die and Elijah says no, God has another plan but you've got to make me a bread first now, first of all, I can't even imagine how hard that would have been for a prophet to say. To look at a lady who has nothing and say, go make me bread first. But he does. Because God is teaching us something through this story. So what happens? She says, okay. She goes home. She makes that little fire. She makes that little that little opens that jar, takes every bit of it out, pours every bit of that oil in the pan, makes a piece of bread, breaks it off, goes, takes it to Elijah, goes back, and there's enough for her and her son. And she says, we don't assume this from the way the story's going to read here in a minute, why don't you come back with me and my son and live with us? Elijah and her walk back, and he gets up the next morning, and it happens to be a, a... I was going to say, I was going to say um, biscuits and sausage gravy but it ends up being biscuits because you know it's for lunch biscuits you know it's for supper biscuits um, and so she makes the stuff for them and every day she goes to that jar and opens it up and there's more so she makes it and puts the lid on the jar and puts it back on the shelf and gets up the next day and opens it up and every day God takes care of them Every day she sees that happening. Great story, huh? Until you read the rest of it. Then here's what happens. No, notice what happens next. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Her son dies. And notice what she does. What have you done what do you have against me man of God did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son she looks at Elijah and goes the only reason you're here is to kill my son and Elijah says yes because you're a wicked old woman no Notice what he says. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room. So in other words, you've got to get this picture. She's got her dead son in her arms. She's walking up to Elijah and going, You did this! If it wasn't for you, he would be alive. You just did this. You brought all of my past up. You did this because of my past. And Elijah just simply looks at her and says, Give me your son. Now, this doesn't mean a lot to us, but let's remember, Elijah is a prophet. He is a Jew. The second he touches a dead body, he is now unclean, and he now it says, and he took her from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed. Now his bed's undefiled. It is defiled. He cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought tragedy also upon the woman I'm staying with by causing her son to die. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The picture is probably the idea, the child is laying there and Elijah literally puts himself across his body and cries out to God to, to, to to bring this boy back to life. Begging God to do something here. On three occasions, so he doesn't give up first time. Now listen, here's why this is significant. This has never happened before. Nobody has ever come back from the dead up until now in the Bible. No one. And Elijah here is crying out to God to do something. And notice what it says. It goes to say, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. A much, much different story than we started with. Because now this woman deals with a level of sorrow and a level of pain that very few people can understand unless you have experienced it and so I think, it's, I, I think there's some interesting things in this story she knows that Elijah's a man of God she has watched this guy morning and night she's seen how he's interacted in her home he's wa- she's watched him pray she's watched him spend time with God and the second her son dies what does she do this is very very important what does she do She says, because you're so holy, you came into my house, and because I am unholy, because of my past, God said, I'm going to teach this woman a lesson and take her son. Boy, that's a big jump. But that's where she went, because this gal had never dealt with the forgiveness and repentance and things like that that came from God. So here's the crazy thing. We're going to get into this in a second. Elijah, who was brought into her home for good, she can't see it. All she can see is bad. Because her worldview is tainted. All she can do is see her past. She can't see the fact that god she she has forgotten the simple concept that when elijah stepped into your life you were within 24 hours of being dead both you and your son but she couldn't see any of that all she could see was her past that she had never dealt with but god had already dealt with and so this and so elijah here basically does not react and this is what i love about elijah We're going to get to a point where I think Elijah crosses a line. But here I don't think Elijah crosses a line. Here I think Elijah is absolutely, perfectly responding. And he he doesn't look at this woman and go, you know what, I just had it with you. If it wasn't for me, you and your son would have been dead a long time ago. How dare you accuse me of killing your son? He doesn't do any of that. All he does is say, give him to me. He takes him upstairs in a private place. I think that's very, very important. Because you know, here's what we here's what you miss in the life of Elijah. In a few weeks we're going to be talking about Elijah and Mount Carmel, this story that we all know. What you need to remember is before there's a Mount Carmel, there's a cherith. Where it's just him and God and the ravens. And before and after Cherith, before Mount Carmel, there's a time where Elijah's faith is tested. And there's a time where Elijah has an opportunity to react, and he doesn't. There's a time that Elijah could have gotten all bent out of shape, but he doesn't. Elijah just says, give give him to me. He goes up privately between him and God, and he says, look, God, in essence, here's his prayer. God, you've brought me into the home of this woman, and this woman's taking care of me. Please, don't do this. Because I don't want this woman to think me being here is a bad thing. For your sake, God, for your testimony, do something here. And God does something he has never done in the history of the Bible to this point. He's going to do it eight more times in the Bible, but this is the first time it ever happens. And so you, this, and can you imagine the face of that mother? I say, in my mind, I say it's a little old lady. But here's the thing. This child is very, very young. Young enough to be carried. So we either have one of two ideas. Either she's a grandmother taking care of her grandchildren, her grandchild. Or she's a young widow with a very young child. And Elijah comes walking down and says, your son lives. And she says, now I know. You are from God, and what you say is true. And so that's the story as we leave it um, for this morning. All right, a couple lessons. Here's first lesson for each of us, I think. This passage is about obedience. You see the obedience of Elijah when he walks away from Cherith and goes to Jeraphath. He doesn't question God. He doesn't debate with God. He doesn't argue with God. He simply says, okay God, you want me to go to Jarephath and meet meet a widow woman who's going to take care of me? Sure, let's move. God works in the heart of this woman. You see this woman being obedient to God. In fact, the text says earlier that God commanded her to do this. So this woman, even though she was in a pagan, Gentile world, has some reference to God and basically believes the God of Jehovah, the God of Israel and he says, look, you know what I'm going, to tell, I'm going to put on her heart to do this so when Elijah comes up and asks her notice her response is she goes to get water and when he asks her for food she comes back and says, look, just so you got all the facts here, this is our last meal and Elijah says, I understand that but you go do this first. Now, I want to talk about that because that's the significant thing in this passage. In the Old Testament, there's a principle called the principle of first fruits. It was the idea that when a harvest came in, Israelites, what they would do is they would take the first of their harvest and they would give part of it back to God. In this case, they would give it to the temple. It's a principle that goes all the way through Scripture. The idea of God. Gets his first. Here's why that principle is so important in our lives. If I if if I get a check, okay, let's say God let's say God lays it upon my heart to help somebody, and I know that so and so is going through a struggling financially, and I should help them, and so I know that God wants me to help them, and I look at God and I say, okay, God, here's what we'll do. I know I got this thousand dollar check that came in this week, and I'll pay all my bills, and then I will give away whatever's left over here's the problem that's not faith there's no trust there it's you know I'm going to pay this first whatever's left over I'll, I'll give away first fruits is this principle of first fruit says I'm going to give it to God first then God will have to multiply by faith that which I have left that's the whole principle here in this oil bread thing it is why we meet on Sunday. Sunday is... See, Christianity shifted worship to not the last day of the week, the Sabbath, but the first day of the week, Sunday. Why? Because the whole principle of the resurrection is the idea of first fruits. It's the idea that Jesus came out of the tomb conquering death first. Since he has done that, never to die again. Because see, this boy, although he was raised we'll die again Jesus won't and so the whole principle of first verse is first and then I, it, it was a sign for all of us of that which is to come that we conquer death because of Christ The principle of first verse says I do it first and then I trust God to take care of the rest that's faith listen It is essential that you and I start to learn that. The reason we're here this week is because here's why. I mean, whether you know it or not, this is why you should be here this morning. Okay, let me put it that way. Here's why you should be here this morning, okay? This is the first day of the week. You're acknowledging to Almighty God that this is important, that He is important, that you're here this morning to honor, to worship Him, to encourage other believers, to get a a jump, if you will, on your spiritual life this week. You're doing this first this week. You've got all kinds of other things on the schedule. But this is first. This is number one. This is first. That's the principle of first fruits. Because everybody knows there are other places you could be this morning. Right? Let me give you a big hint. Bed? Because <clears throat> I don't run into a lot of people that go, oh, yeah, I've had enough sleep for the week. Really? You know, I, I want to meet you. Um, you know, why? Because we run that way. But the principle of first fruit says, I'm going to do this first in a week. I'm going to honor God this way. The principle of first fruit says, I'm going to put this first. Now, listen to me, because you really need to understand this principle. We often think of this in terms of money, and it applies in money too. You take you t- whatever money comes in, you say, I've got to set aside a portion of this first to give away. I'm not saying, again, I don't want this to come across as like, oh, our finances is tough for the church, do you guys need more? No, 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 I don't care where you give it at this point. Give something away first. That's my point. My point is that it doesn't need to be all about you. That's why some of you are so frustrated, because everything's about you. All of it's about you. But when you embrace this idea of obedience by putting others and God first, you start to see God take care of things. And you start to live by faith. And you start to live by trust. And you start to see God do do things in your life. It's that idea of doing it first. You want to know why some of you are struggling right now like you are in your marriage? Because you haven't learned this principle. You put your spouse... You want to guess? First. You put your spouse first. You get up today and tomorrow... And here's here's what you think. How can I serve my spouse today? What can I do to make my wife's... I'm going to apply it to me. What can I do to make my wife's life better? I am put on this planet in this marriage to serve, to minister, to put my wife first. And my wife... Is supposed to get up tomorrow morning and say, What can I do today to put my husband first? And a Christian marriage as it should be is two people trying to outserve each other. And you're going, that's gotta be like awesome. It is. It is, it's awesome. It's awesome. Two people fighting over who's cooking. I've never experienced this, but two people fighting over who gets to do the dishes. No, 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 I'm, no, I'm going to the next one. No, no, I'm going to the next one. No, 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 no. I'm going to the next one, which is two people fighting over who gets to do the dishes. I have never experienced that, okay? My wife does the dishes. Um, but it's the idea of out-serving one another. That's a great marriage. That's marriage as God intended it. You put the other person first. A great Family is trying to serve your kids. By serving your kids, I don't mean doing things for them. I mean really genuinely figuring out what they need and how to best get them to be functioning, responsible adults in the world. It's looking at your neighbor and saying, how can I serve them? How can I help them? It's going into work tomorrow, not being focused on all the tasks and the to-do list that you've got, but instead looking at that, looking at, going into work tomorrow and saying, Who who can I find a day that needs to be helped? I'm going to put them first, not me. I'm talking about a radical kind of lifestyle that this world knows nothing about. That's what we're talking about. This principle of first. He looks at this woman and says, I understand you're about ready to go make your last meal and die, but take care of me first. It was a test. It was a test to see if she would really do it. Because God knew, if she would really, really put me first, then I can do some really neat things here. But if she wants to trust herself, then let her trust herself, and I'll see how far that gets her. And some of you have not learned that. And so, every issue that you come up against, there is no first fruit, there is no trust, there is no obedience, and you take it in your own hands, and if you haven't figured this out yet, you will mess it all up. It's the idea of obedience. It's the idea of, okay, you're struggling financially, here's what you do. You go to the Word of God, you find out what God says about finances, and you do it. you struggle in your marriage, you go to the Word of God, you find out what it says about how you treat your spouse, and you do it. You go to the Word of God, you say, okay, how do I handle kids? do what God says what kind of employee do I need to be you go to the word of God it says this kind of employee to be that's what you go do that's what we're talking about it's obedience it's obedience and the one thing you see in the story is an incredible level of obedience both on Elijah's part and the woman at Zarephath so much so that when he gets on Mount Carmel he can actually pray probably one of the shortest prayers in all the Bible and God rains down fire from heaven why because he's been obedient. Because he's been obedient. Second thing I think you'll learn is this. God wants to work. God wants to use you. But you have got to learn to be totally dependent upon him. And too many of us, you know what we do? We run the show. We're control freaks. And so we're always figuring out. We're the, the people. They're sitting at Jericho. Where's the people that are sitting at Cherith? And we're going, okay, you know, I really don't like being at Cherith. God, you know, I really think I ought to be over at the Jordan River. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to move camp today. We're going to, like, go halfway between Cherith and the Jordan River. And that way, if this gets too bad, I can, like, sneak over there every once in a while. And no. He sits there and waits for God to say, okay, time to move. And if you haven't figured this out yet, here's what's going to happen God often asks you to do very difficult things. It's a difficult thing to leave Cherith and, try and walk a hundred miles in a drought. That's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to leave the comfort of Jewish, at least there are some Jewish people in Judah, or in Israel, to leave the comfort of that to go to Phoenicia, where it's all Baal people? Whew. That's pretty uncomfortable. That's like being a ham at a Jewish picnic. I mean, you know, you're just not welcome. Think about it. You'll get it. Um, I mean, it's just, you're just not welcome at that point. And you're around complete strangers. And nothing's comfortable. Sometimes God asks you to do some difficult things. For some of you, you're in struggling marriages, you're in struggling relationships, you're in struggling jobs, and God's asking you to do some pretty tough stuff. To stick it out, to go do what you're supposed to do, to treat that person like you're supposed to treat them, to stay in that job, to be a testimony in that place. And God's asked you to do some really, really tough things. Okay. I find this. The reason God asks you to do tough things is because he wants to do big things. And there can't be a carmel if Elijah's not willing to walk 100 miles to Zarephath. And so he's willing to do that. He's willing to do the tough thing. It, Elijah can't look at God and go, God, come on. She's a poor widow woman. She's eating her last meal. And you want me to be a selfish prophet from Israel and tell her to feed me first? What kind of God are you? What kind of God is going to do great things, but it's got to be done my way? I've got a plan. I've got a plan here. And I, want to, I just want to challenge you that God has a plan. And here's, here's the last lesson from this thing. And this is my, like, my favorite lesson in this whole thing. There are lots of prophets in Israel that God could have sent Elijah to. Because we know, after the thing of Baal, that's one of the things God's going to tell him. Look, i got thousands of guys just like you. God doesn't send him there. God sends him to a Gentile Phoenician woman in a pagan place who's a widow who has a really checkered bad past. And God says, this is the woman who's going to take care of you. And he's better off with the ravens. But God said, no, 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 you don't understand, Elijah. This is the woman I want to use. And you know what, Elijah? When you read this story, here's what you find and this is what I love. If you parallel her faith with Elijah's faith, she actually wins. Because she had such a great faith that she was willing to risk her own, the life of her own child to obey God. And that, folks, is, is, is pretty impressive. And God says, no, you don't understand, Elijah. I take great delight in using people who don't think I can use them. I take great delight in using people who, yeah, their past is horrible. That's okay. And God actually uses this event in her life to get her to understand that I'm not going to hold your past against you. You follow me and obey me. That's all I want. I don't care about your past. I can deal with the past stuff. That's okay. But she had never dealt with it. And so, when a good thing happens that God has brought his prophet to take care of her and her son, and difficulty comes and her son gets sick and her son dies, instead of coming to Elijah saying, Elijah, my son has died, is there anything you can do? She walks in and lamb blasts him for killing her son. And he just says, It's okay. Because she had never dealt with her past. Listen. <sighs> As a Christian, you need to really understand forgiveness and you need to really understand what God does with your past. There's a reason Scripture says that God takes your past and buries it as far as the east is from the west, buries it in the depths of the deepest sea. You need to really come to understand that. A couple weeks ago, probably a month ago now, I did the illustration of the coat, remember, with all the marks on it, and I put the robe on. You know, I still had the coat on. But you couldn't see the coat. Why? Why? Because the righteousness of Christ took care of all of that. And that's what some of you have got to understand. Some of you have things in your past that you are allowing that to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. And you think that that's a reason you can't serve God or God can't use you. And this is a great story to show you. I don't care what your past is. God says, if you follow me, if you give me your heart, I'll do cool things in your life. I'll do things beyond anything you can think of. And this woman, who by all rights should have died... Because it was a drought and people died. And God says, no, no, I'm going to do something special in her life. Elijah, you go be with her. You go take care of her. You go do some neat things in her life. You go take care of her and her son. And she experiences something no other person in history has at this point ever experienced. And she watches a dead child come to life. Listen don't underestimate what God can do in your life that's the thing I guess that bugs me the most about being in a rural community is people don't understand how God listen, God can take a little box like this and change a life forever and change a family's life that's the kind of God we serve. And he takes great delight in that. So don't think he can't use you in whatever place of work you are, doing whatever job you have to do, Monday through Friday, he can't use you. He takes great delight in that. So let him. Let him. He wants to use you. But you got to be obedient. You've got to learn to depend on him every day. And you've got to put first things first. That's what you'll learn at Zarephathic. That's what God illustrates for us as Zarephath. Now, our challenge is to go out and do it this week. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, we've all got stuff. We've all got baggage. We've all got things that really hinder, in our mind, you being able to use us. Lord, may we put those away this week. May we come to understand that, Lord, there's a lot of areas in our lives that we have put you, second, third, fourth, fifth.